this morning. We'll spend our time talking about evangelism, God's power. The power of God in evangelism. Where is it? Where does it rest? What's the foundation of evangelism? What's the point of evangelism? Where are we headed in evangelism? From where are we beginning in evangelism? Powerless evangelism leaves out the ingredient we will discuss this morning. False evangelism. Evangelism that's focused on anything other than what we will talk about this morning is not evangelism. It doesn't lean on God's purpose. It does not implement God's plan. It does not focus on God's person. And it certainly does not bring about God's pleasure. But as we look this morning at God's power in evangelism, my hope is that you would understand that in the instance where death is imminent, which is every minute, but in particular in those moments where you know someone who thinks he or she is about to die or know someone who thinks he or she is about to die or know someone who has died. This is a time of fertile opportunity. And hearts are soft. I never pass up the opportunity to do a funeral. I've done a lot of funerals in the last couple of decades. And I've probably done more funerals for people that I never met. Why? Because I'm willing and most people aren't. You call most guys and say, hey, will you do a funeral for Aunt Sally who died? Um, sorry, I didn't know Aunt Sally. My response is, help me get to know Aunt Sally. I want to be able to honor her, but I also want to be able to communicate the gospel. If you'll let me do those two things, I'll do the funeral. I'm more than happy to do it free of charge. It'll be an honor. It'll be a privilege. I got a text message yesterday from a friend who now lives in my hometown, Joppa, Missouri. He said, a friend's, friend's grandfather died. Will you do the funeral? I said, absolutely. When is it? Why? Because I want to communicate the gospel in every opportunity, but certainly in the most fertile opportunity. When someone has died or when someone is about to die, hearts are soft. Point number one, point number one this morning in our effort to understand and believe the reality that God's power in evangelism is necessary for us to understand. Number one, because of sin... All people die physically. Because of sin, all people die physically. Genesis 2 verse 16 tells us, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. In the moment that Adam and Eve sinned by eating of that fruit, Death began to work its slow but certain decaying process. So there was a sense in which they died in that moment, but there was also a sense in which they began to die and ultimately would die. And so physically their lives one day would expire. And by the way, you sinned in Adam. And so did I. You say, I don't understand that. I wasn't there 6,000 years ago. This is why we adhere to a grammatical, historical approach to the Bible. The Bible says we sinned in Adam. You sinned in Adam. I sinned in Adam. My best understanding of that is that if I had been there in Adam's shoes, although he wasn't probably wearing shoes, I would have done exactly what he did and so would you. We sinned in him. The idea is that we are equally culpable. Every bit as much guilty, not less guilty because we inherited the sinful tendency, but equally guilty on every level. And this is where we ultimately get the doctrine of depravity. We are born into sin. We are foundationally sinful. That's one of the problems with modern psychology and really all psychology is that it's based on the idea that man has a clean slate and if he works it right, then he'll gain favor with God. As we pointed out last week, God is righteous. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. God is righteous, man is unrighteous, and therefore he cannot allow unrighteousness to go unpunished. 
Otherwise, he would be unrighteous. You understand that. You understand that if you hold in your hand a pure glass of water with no impurities, no imperfections, and you add one half a drop of strychnine to it, now what do you have? You not only have an impure glass of water, you've got, you got a glass of strychnine. You've got a glass of poison, and so it's polluted. And this is the case with God's character. Any measure, any hint, any shadow of imperfection, flaw, Impurity makes God not God. Therefore, he cannot tolerate any degree of sin. Not a hint of it. Perfection cannot allow sin. Sin must be judged. In Exodus 23, verse 7, God says he will not acquit the guilty. This is his stance on the matter. He has spoken. And all kinds of arguments can well up within within you with, in some sense, a well-meaning purpose for defending others who you think are, are essentially and basically good people. But God has spoken, and He has put it in writing, and it's an unchanging truth that man is essentially and fundamentally wicked, therefore deserving of punishment. Everyone, because of original sin, for which we are guilty, will die physically, It is inevitable. You can't escape it. In fact, you can't even postpone it. Psalm 139 verse 16 says of the Lord, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. As I said last week, we don't typically have a problem with this theology, the idea that God determined the date of our birth, the date of our conception, or the date of our death. What we usually have trouble with is everything in between. How can he be sovereign in all that stuff? But the reality is, this is a good starting place to acknowledge that the scripture teaches also in Hebrews 9 27, that God foreordained your last breath. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. So there's a physical death for everyone. You're not the next Enoch. God's not going to take you. Unless, of course, you're here when Christ returns for his church to take them home. That could happen, but I doubt it. So there is a physical death for everyone. The body wears out, or it's abused over the years, or there's some sort of traumatic injury to a vital organ, but it ceases to live. It expires. And it has to, because it's got a shelf life. It won't live forever. The average worldwide life expectancy is, uh, you might guess, between 70 and 80 years. In some of the poorer countries like Malawi and Mozambique and Zambia and Zimbabwe and Angola, it's 36 or 37. Why? It's because life is hard there and it's not much valued there. And it's hot and bodies wear out faster and it's dangerous and there's a life-crushing poverty People starve to death. But they also undergo the horrific, tyrannical, governmental control and abuse of so many wicked and pervasively evil governments. So they die young. And it's a stark reality. Death is all around. You can't avoid it in those cultures. Even in America, where we have the highest standard of living known in history, it's only 77 The highest life expectancy in the world is 83. And that's in a small landlocked country in the mountains between France and Spain. Why? Basically because they eat well and exercise a lot. But they still die. The average life expectancy age is actually getting lower with the infiltration of, you guessed it, fast food. Death is everywhere. We can try to avoid it, ignore it, pretend it won't happen. But you have a non-postponable appointment with it. Every year, almost no matter where people live on the planet, there's a cycle that includes death. Lots of it. Plants die. Insects die. Animals die. Everything dies. Everybody knows it's going to die. They watch it die and they See it happen year after year. This is a measure of God's judgment. When the world was created, there was no death. 
Then, then came sin and death followed. And life is fragile because death is imminent. Children have a hard time being affected by this because they usually don't have uh, much of an experience with it. They haven't seen much death. Talk to a child who's lost a friend, high school friend, a grade school friend. They're much more sensitive to the shortness of life. They've got a different perspective. Or especially if they've lost a family member, it's even more significant. You can't hide that from a child. Daddy's gone. Our brother's gone. You've got to help them understand it. In our culture, the, the pattern, the practice is to pretend it didn't happen. You know, Papa Joe's on vacation for a long time. Right? You've seen that before. I learned this myself at an early age. My father died when I was eight years old. Death became my enemy in my mind. Took my dad. I loved him. I wanted to be with him. So I hated death. Didn't want to think about it. I remember the moment my mom told me that he died. I didn't want to believe it. But I understood it. I knew that it meant I'd never see him again. My dad was a surgeon. And I, I knew what he did for a living. I knew that he saved people's lives. In fact, occasionally when I go back home to that area where I grew up, someone will say, your dad saved my life. And so as a small child, eight years old, I couldn't understand why he who could save lives couldn't have his life saved. It didn't seem right. But I knew it was real. I was faced with that. I knew he was dead, but I didn't understand how it could happen. I thought, why couldn't they save his life if he could save theirs? But one thing is for sure, I understood that it was over. I understood it, even as an eight-year-old. When you're faced with it, you're forced to consider reality. Everyone dies, and everyone knows that everyone dies. Here's a stat for you. Every person in the world sins every day. Not only does everybody die once, it's appointed to do that, but everybody sins every day, very likely every hour. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Through one man, through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So sin was the gaping gateway unto death. The instant sin took place, death followed in a mad, unceasing, eternal rush. As we said from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Last week, though, we asked you the question, why did Christ need to die? Why did He need to die? We said that Christ must die. If death is the result of sin, why would the one who is sinless need to die? Well, he needed to die, not only because it was prophesied in the Word of God, and not only because it was predestined by God Himself that He would die, but because He bore the sins of sinners. That's why. He didn't know sin. He didn't commit sin. He wasn't guilty of sin, but he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so becoming sin, taking on sin, he took on the shame, he took on the guilt that necessitates death. So it was the punishment that you and I deserve that he took for us. So Christ, upon whom the sins of the world were laid, must have died because righteous God punishes unrighteousness. And so he did die, and he died a substitutionary death. So even Christ, the sinless one, died, not because he inherited the sinful nature and sinned in Adam like the rest of us, but because he willingly took on the sins of all those who would believe in him. And in so doing, his death was necessary for the justice of God to remain intact and to be carried out. We told you that Christ's death meant his father's abandonment of him. 
As we told you, God in His righteousness cannot look upon sin, cannot tolerate sin. So in the moment that His Son becomes sin, He must turn His back on His Son. And He abandoned Him. Thus you have Jesus' response on the cross, My God, my God. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? And we said this, and I want you to know this phrase. I want you to, I want you to, to know this phrase well, that you would understand it. That you would understand the importance of it. In having divested himself of his deified prerogatives, he intentionally, willingly, allowed for himself to not know all that the Father knows. And thus the question, why? And some would say, but that fights against, that beats against, that tramples on the sovereignty of God, Jesus Christ. That's the point, that's one of the points, that's one of the elements of the incarnation. That he being God, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But prior to that, the willingness to become human, the willingness to restrain Himself, the willingness to, as I said, divest himself of his deified prerogatives for a time. That he might not be a priest who cannot empathize with our weaknesses, but that he could. That he would understand our temptations in full, experientially. So his father abandoned him. He turned his back on him. And ultimately, he executed him. Because sin must be judged. Must be penalized. We also said that Christ's death meant atonement for the believer. The word atonement means a covering of sins. And it's not uh, that the sins don't exist. It's not that they didn't happen. It is as if they did not happen. It is a full and complete covering over. So they are no longer held to the sinner's account. We said that it resulted in Redemption, Christ's death meant redemption. Redemption from what? From sin, death, and the devil. Redeemed from that sinful imprisonment. Redeemed from the ultimate torment, spiritual death, eternal torment, and redeemed from the parenthood of Satan. We said that it meant propitiation. This is certain satisfaction that God, having set His special love upon some, would make certain that propitiation would be supplied for all those who would receive Him. So not one drop of His blood was needlessly spilled. It was poured out for the elect. And all of the elect will be saved Because of that propitiatory work which satisfies the wrath of God for them. We said that Christ's death results in reconciliation or friendship. That's what the word means. And so in the concept of evangelism, we love the word because it's the biblical word. Reconciliation. We are committed to the ministry of reconciliation. Word means friendship. You know the phrase from the courts. Two people decide they don't want to be married anymore. In many cases, they boil it down to this. Irreconcilable differences. It's the standard phrase. The reality is that you and God had irreconcilable differences, and so he miraculously reconciled them. And so the ministry of reconciliation was extended to you by God through some human who faithfully explained the gospel to you and lived it out in your presence so that you would see that it's credible. Well, Christ's death is what brought about that friendship, that reconciliation. Christ's death also brought about justification, meaning that you have been made legally right with God. This is a legal term, imputation, the imputation of righteousness, the imputation of justice. It's a legal stamp. It's a forensic statement This is reality. You are just in God's eyes. So his love for you is what has made you just. But Christ's death is the vehicle by which that's brought about. 
Romans 3.26 says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the greatness of death's power is displayed in the death of Christ. Even Jesus Christ, the God-man, must succumb to the sad and tragic reality that all things die. And death is powerful. So Genesis 3.15 is partially fulfilled where God said to Satan, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Ultimately, Jesus will crush the head of Satan, but in the meantime, Satan has bruised his heel. This a, a prototype or a foreshadowing of the nail being run through the feet of the Savior. Satan bruised his heel. His heel was pierced. Satan experienced a certain victory. Christ was dead. From one perspective, Satan triumphed. He entered the false convert, Judas, and used him to sell out the Son of Man for 30 pieces of silver. And so he was falsely accused, unjustly tried, illegally convicted, and unrighteously executed. Death held dominion over him for a time because death is powerful. Really, it's the greatest tragedy of all history. This one who was sinless, the only one who deserved not to die, was unjustly murdered at the hands of godless men. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans were all guilty of killing the anointed one. And while Christ's death stands to be the worst event in human history, the paradox is that it served within God's design to be the greatest event in all history as it meant substitution for the guilty. But Jesus did not stay dead. Point number one, as you remember, was because of sin, all people die physically. All people die physically. But Jesus did not stay dead physically. Point number two, Christ's resurrection conquered physical death. Christ's resurrection conquered physical death. You remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus had died. His family sent word to Jesus. They didn't ask him to come. They just said he's dead. Evidently there was no expectation that he would resurrect him, but he came back and he did just that. So he proved that he miraculously could make life out of death. Or death was certain. We're not talking about a 15-minute flat line where the organs continue to function. But the organs were gone. They were proverbially history. There was no sign of life. Jesus showed his power over death prior to his own death, but could he save his own life? Could he resurrect himself? Surely not. He was dead. And in John 10, verse 17, we read, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Romans 6, verse 9 says, Death no longer has dominion over him. It did, but it doesn't. And there's a God-breathed written record. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. All four Gospels record the resurrection of the dead man, Jesus the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that 500 people witnessed the resurrection. They witnessed the person of Jesus Christ alive after having been dead. I want to read to you from Mark 16, the account of the resurrection. Mark 16, verse 1. 
When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might come and anoint him. The traditional response to death. You anoint the body because it smells. It's a horrific odor. Death does. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen... He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because the great power of death had come up against something of far greater and infinitely more mysterious power. How can death be overcome? How can the power of death be overridden? Christ's resurrection is a display of God's power over sin and over death. Death could not hold him 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is your enemy. It's my enemy. It's not just an enemy of your life personally. It's an enemy of your family. At some point in your lifetime, it's brought about great misery. Jesus conquered death. Christ's resurrection conquered physical death and yet you will still die. And mockers will look at the scripture, they will hear us repeat gladly and joyously the truths of the word of God. We tell people that if you know Jesus Christ, you will not die. And they say, I know people who know Jesus Christ and they died. So they trifle with the word of God and, and play with it as if it contradicts itself. I believe with an intentional effort not only to mock the Lord, but an intentional effort to misunderstand what's being said. You see, there is no promise that you will not physically die. You will die physically. So why then does this matter? Why why does it matter to us that Christ was resurrected? What's the significance of Christ's resurrection if we still die physically? Well, point number three, there is a second death. There is a second death. Yes, there's physical death, and you all have seen it and observed it. You've been impacted by it. But there is a second death, eternal wrath. Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 11, says, Then I saw a great white throne... And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged." every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what is commonly referred to as the great white throne judgment. There is physical death, which everyone will experience, except, of course, those who are taken up in the clouds with him. But there is the second death, and this is a very real place where there is a conscious understanding and penetration of eternal torment that is as fire. 
You can think of it very similarly to what it would be like to be lit on fire and to stay that way forever with no mercy and no relief ever. The flame will not die out. In Luke 13, starting with verse 5, we read the words of Jesus, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And so this illustrates the reality that there is a coming judgment. There is a coming physical death, but there is a coming second death for those who show no fruit. Listen to the destiny of the self-deceived, hypocritical, judgmental, grace-rejecting legalist. The one who leans on his own performance along with his supposed ability to hide his sin so that he can judge and condemn others. Listen to the, the state of this person in Romans 2, Romans 2 verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. This is not a command to withhold judgment in all circumstances. You know that the scripture calls us, commands us to judge one another, to assess each other's lives. Paul has very clearly qualifies this type of judgment, saying that there are those who pass judgment while they themselves are guilty of the judgment that they are passing on others. They are guilty of the sins that they are judging others for. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So for those who pursue eternal life, for those who pursue what is good, they will receive eternal life. For those who pursue dishonesty, they do not obey the truth, then they will experience wrath and righteous hatred. Verse 9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Believe it or not, this type of hypocrisy can be manifested in a passionate display of what seems like real evangelism. A person becomes hyper-focused on a particular method of evangelism, a program, a plan. He sets his sights on getting through his memorized presentation and has little or no thought of the power of the resurrection for the salvation of his own soul, much less the person he's attempting to persuade. He has become critical of all those who do not do exactly what he does, even expressing confusion and consternation over their seeming lack of fervor for their method. What's his problem? He has no real interest in or dependence upon the resurrection as his hope. He leans on his own fleshly wisdom to understand Jesus Christ 
in this lifetime, but he does not have the power of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then these penetrating words that every Christian should memorize. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So when the resurrection becomes nothing more than a footnote and a gospel presentation, it's not evangelism. There is simply some sort of lip service given to it because that's what you're supposed to say. But there's no real dependence upon the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not evangelism. It's some form of earthly and maybe even fleshly persuasion. Friends, there is a second death. And it is eternal wrath. Point number four. Christ's resurrection ensures all of the following for the believer. Christ's resurrection ensures all of the following for the believer. I'm going to give you several points, several sub-points. I'll say it again. Point number four. Christ's resurrection ensures all of the following for the believer. Letter A. Escape from the second death. God's wrath. Escape from this second death. God's wrath. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. They have a vested interest in the first resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is the first resurrection for man and then a second resurrection for other men and this is why the resurrection matters. When we refer to the first resurrection, we think back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but ultimately we think of that reality that one day believers will be resurrected. And when we think of the first resurrection versus the second resurrection, that's what we're talking about. There's a second resurrection for unbelievers. But in the first resurrection, believers will be judged. It's not as if there won't be an account for the actions that believers have committed. Romans 14 verse 10 says, But you... Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Back in Romans 10 verse 12, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Don't think that just because you are in Christ, you won't be held accountable for your actions. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But we will not experience the second death or God's wrath. Revelation 2 verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There are those who will escape the second death. Christ in his resurrection, because of his resurrection, and the power of his resurrection ensures that those who are in Christ, those who believe in the gospel and have repented of their sins, will not experience the second death. John 5 verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
So the judgment that the believer will experience is a judgment for his actions, but he will not be ultimately condemned. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its power has made certain that he would not experience the second death. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That passage should bring you great heartfelt joy. There is no condemnation. There is no ultimate judgment. There is no second death. There is no wrath for those who are in Christ. Letter B. Regeneration. You've been made alive by the power of the resurrection. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But verse 5 says, We were raised up with Him because He was raised. His resurrection makes certain the regeneration of the one who is in Christ. Colossians 3 verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If what? If you've been raised up with Him. He in His resurrection has made certain by the power of the resurrection that those for whom He died would also be resurrected. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's regeneration. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that results in the new life of all those who will believe. Letter C. Justification. Justification. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. His resurrection results in the certainty of a justified state for all those who are in Christ. Letter D, perseverance. You may have heard this described before as eternal security. The more proper way to think of it is the perseverance of the saints. You will persevere, not because you chose to persevere, but because He chose to cause you to persevere. If God predestined you before the foundation of the earth unto salvation, you cannot give back your salvation. I had a man tell me that one time. Todd, I know I can't lose my salvation, but because it's mine, I can give it back. It was never yours. Salvation is of the Lord. It was never yours. It's on loan to you for all eternity. God determined whom He would save. They can't unsave themselves. Romans 8 verse 30, And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You say, well, we're not glorified yet. This is a Greekism, if you will. It's not unusual in the Greek language to speak of something in past tense in its certainty because uh, in such a way that it is as if it already happened. Greek authors will speak in past tense because of the certainty of what is to come. John 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, the resurrection. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He laid hold of you and he will not let go. Not because of an emotional attachment, but because of His sovereign decree. 
1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is a certain eternity. Nothing as you know from the book of Romans, can separate you from the love of God. And we are not talking about an emotional love, but a certain agape love placed on you with an eternal and certain decree. Letter E. Letter E. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus Christ ensure the escape from the second death for the believer, but it also ensures regeneration. It also ensures justification. It not only uh, as well ensures perseverance, but it ensures sanctification. You will change. You will change. The person who does not change is not in Christ. This is maybe one of the, the more obvious problems and therefore one of the most targeted problems within a man-centered theological world today, or some would say you make a decision for Jesus, but whether or not you are cleansed by him, whether or not you are changed by him, is not at issue. We call this easy believism. So the person who claims the name of Christ, but is not regularly being cleansed, regularly being sanctified, putting off sin and putting on Christ, he's not in Christ. And thus we have the ministry of reconciliation. You know people who would claim to be in Christ who are clearly not. So your responsibility to the Lord and to them is to help them understand that sanctification is a necessary and certain result of being in Christ. Philippians 3 verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is for those who are being sanctified. The resurrection from the dead is for those who are being conformed to the death of Jesus Christ. The resurrection from the dead is for those who are increasingly looking more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like self. And one of the measures of this is the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, but I'm an American. I don't suffer. Everything in our culture says suffering is bad. Suffering is wrong. Suffering is from the devil. It can't be right. Something must be wrong. It has been decreed that you would suffer. But I don't like to suffer. No one's asking you to like suffering. But if you would be conformed to Jesus Christ, and let me say it this way, if you would be resurrected from the dead, you will suffer. And modern American Christianity says, I deserve better. I'm one of the king's kids. I deserve to be treated better. Jesus suffered, and he calls you to suffer. That you would be conformed to his image. Suffering plays a crucial and substantially important role in your life as a believer. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ also leads to, letter F, personal bodily resurrection. Personal bodily resurrection. Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's my favorite baptism passage. You want to deliver the gospel with clarity? Read Romans 6. If we are in him, we are in his death. If we are in his death, we are in his resurrection. If we are in his resurrection, we will be conformed to the likeness of his resurrection. The power 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ certainly results in the bodily resurrection of all believers. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You will be given back your body, but it'll be better. Yeah, those problems you're thinking of, they won't exist. There will be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. You will have your body back in a perfected state. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. This is the certain result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its power. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21. Uh, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All does not mean all. You've heard that before, all means all. All does not mean all the people in the world, right? If it meant all the people in the world, then what Paul would be saying here is that everyone will be saved. He's talking about all of those who will be saved. As in Adam, all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. All those who are in Christ will be made alive. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, I love this passage. It's um, so clear, so hopeful, so helpful. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died before you. You have believing friends, believing family who died before you, and the Thessalonians of this day wouldn't have known what to think about what may have happened to them. So Paul, in an urgent effort to console them and comfort them, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We grieve when people die. Those who don't know Christ grieve, and that's all they do. Because there is no hope. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you can comfort those who are in Christ who have dead relatives who have gone before them. They will be with the Lord. We will be with the Lord. Letter G, glorification. Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, you will experience the glorified state. This is not much different from what it means to have a resurrected body. It's one thing to have a resurrected body. It's another thing for your resurrected body to be in the glorified state. It doesn't mean that people will worship you. It doesn't mean that you will be inclined to have people worship you. It simply means it's a perfected state. Letter H. Christ's resurrection ensures the believer power over sin today. Power over sin today. You you say that you struggle with sin as if it's powerful. As if it has power over you. As if it controls you. And I'm here to tell you it does. It does. You say you sometimes feel enslaved to sin. 
as if sin's power is too much for you. And it is. It is too much for you. But there's a solution. And it is in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, I, I, don't, I don't get the connection. I don't get the connection. Colossians 3 verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Yeah, see, if you're not seeking things above where Christ is, then yeah, sin has a firm grip on you. Be certain of it. Count on it. Rest assured. You've got no hope. You've got no power over sin if you don't set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul goes on to say, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. It's not unusual for someone to, to say, I don't understand. I just, I just can't, I can't get any victory in this area. Really? Are you setting your mind on things above? Or are you setting your mind on that which leads you into that sin? You've got to be kidding me. But this is so uncommon in our day. Yeah, I can know Christ. I can ask Jesus into my heart, whatever that means. And yet, I don't want to sin. I'd like to not sin, but, but I still sin. I can't help it. What are you setting your mind on? You have power over sin today in the power of the resurrection if you are in Christ. If this is a matter of mockery to you, you don't know Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, the person who wants to hang on to his own life is the person about whom Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his soul? It's the same mindset that Paul has here. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is Christ your life? See that? Is Christ your life? Or are you bored with things of the Lord? Do you get worn out with things that are related to the church and things that are related to Christ? Is it, is it monotonous to you? Is it meaningless to you? Is it powerless to you? Not if you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If Christ is your life, Paul says, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory and you long for that day. You want that day to come quickly. And so this is the ingredient. This is the secret. This is the recipe for power over sin today. Verse 5, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also... Put them all aside. It's command. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do you gossip? Do you find joy in saying negative things about other people? You wonder why you can't get a grasp on sin? You invite it into your life. You, you swing the door wide open and say, Welcome! Verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There is power over sin today in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the dilemma for the believer is according to Romans 7 is that although in his inner man he desires that which is good, but his flesh, his earthly members, desire to do bad. So Paul asks this most hope-filled question, who will set me free from the body of this death? Do you remember that in Romans 7? Who will set me free from the body of this death? Because that's the problem. You see, the person who experiences this dilemma, he wants to do good, but he finds himself doing bad. He wants to not do bad, but he finds himself doing it. What's the problem? It's that unredeemed humanity called the flesh. It's the members. It's the reality that sin lives in you. It's not you, Paul says. It's not you. It's sin that is in you. You, and so what do you do to mortify it? What do you do to kill the flesh? One day, you and I will be completely free from bondage to sin. We'll be set free from this earthly, unredeemed body. 
and it will ultimately be resurrected unto glorification. But for now, we rest in the hope that we have the power of the resurrection as expressed in the word of God to remind us of our destiny. To remind us of the current ability to exercise spirit-filled control and obedience. Do you love the resurrection of Christ? Do you think about it? Do you even ever think about it at all? Or you just say, you know, I, I know Christ. I, I, you know, I, I made a commitment to Christ. And, you know, I go to church sometimes. And, I, you know, I do some stuff. And, you know, I'm trying to be a good person. Trying to do the right thing. That's kind of the modern adage. Do you love the resurrection? Do you understand the power of the resurrection? Have you experienced the power of the resurrection on a daily basis? Is it the resurrection, the power to bring life from death that convinces you in the moment that you can resist the flesh? Let me ask it this way. When you're sinning, what is it about God that you don't believe? When you're gossiping, when you're slandering others, when you're rejecting the command, whatever it is from the scripture, when you're choosing to be unloving, when you're choosing not to share the gospel with your life and with your words, what is it about God and his power in the resurrection that you don't believe? Why would you not believe it? Letter I and finally, Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures, letter I, God's power in evangelism. It ensures God's power in evangelism. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's kind of his standard salutation for a letter. And then he makes a very profound statement. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Now listen to this. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. You remember that? Remember that message where we told you you've got to learn to rest in his eternal decree? That's what Paul's saying. We know that you are of the elect because of your faithfulness, because of your love, because of your labor of love, your steadfast hope, the work of faith. We know God's choice of you because of those things. And then he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. The gospel came to you in power. You received it eagerly. You received it gladly and it changed your life. You didn't become that standard person who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church and, you know, I go to youth group and that fun stuff. Yeah, I've church, been church all my whole life. I know all about it. I can tell you all backwards and forwards, you know. I know it all. I know the Bible. Man, do I know the Bible. Really? Do you experience the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically the resurrection to change your life? That you would be equipped to evangelize the lost. Do people care what you think about your Christianity? Or is it really no different? Does the resurrection equip you? Do you experience God's power in evangelism? Paul goes on here in 1 Thessalonians for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Friends, this is it. If you're interested in the power of God in evangelism, this is it. It's how you live your life. It's not about having a clear method, a persuasive approach, a good memorized speech, a strategy. It's not about any of that stuff. It is about this. That we prove to be a certain kind of men for your sake. He says it this way. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. For their sake, why? That they would know Christ. That their hearts were not just driven toward the Lord because of love for the Lord, but they loved people. 
And therefore, there was that double accountability, not just to live for the Lord, but to live for people. To be willing to be accountable to others. And then he says this, you also, listen to this, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Do you imitate your leadership? You must. And if you say, I can't, then you're at the wrong church. There's something wrong with the leadership if you can't imitate them. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It befuddles me when someone says they're a Christian and they've been a Christian for 40, 50 years and they have no joy. That's bizarre. There's no joy. Having received the word in much tribulation. What do you do when tribulation hits? You go to the word? Or is that when you go dry? You received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Can you imagine? The region of Macedonia and Achaia. Multiple hundreds of people affected by godly lifestyles such that other people engaged in godly lifestyles such that they became evangelistically effective. Verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, listen to this, listen carefully, for they themselves report about us, this is not arrogance, it's not pride, it's not boasting, they report about us, Paul's talking about himself and Sylvanus and Timothy. That we had an impact on you. Here's how he says it. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's effective evangelism. It's how you live your life. Verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Do you think about the resurrection when you think about those who need Christ? Does it matter to you? I'm going to read to you two verses and we'll finish with this. Acts 2 verse 23, you know this from this morning. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But then verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's impossible for those who are in death's grip to remain in death's grip when the power of the resurrection hits full force and is received in the power of the Holy Spirit. 